Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, forward prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. To get a book, to get You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is our review of Turning Red. Let's go. I wear what I want, say what I want, 24 7, 365. I know, it's a lot. But I don't got time to mess around. All about that hustle, am I right? Poor town. This is gonna be the best year ever. And nothing's gonna get in my way. Breakfast is ready. Coming. It's gonna be me. Ah! Is everything okay? I'm a gross red monster. Don't look at me. Stay back. This happened already. What did you say? Our ancestors had a mystical connection with red pandas. Are you kidding me? This little quirk right us in our family. Oh. You were so cute. Sick. I've always wanted a tail. I'm a freak. We love you, May. You're our girl. <sighs> Whoa. You're you. Any strong emotion yes! will release the panda. Abby, hit me. <gasps> oh. Do you know how dangerous this is? You'll get whipped up into a frenzy and panda all over. OMG! My whole life I've been perfect little May May. But maybe I like this new me. (laughs) Mama's girls. Alright everybody, you were just listening to the trailer for Turning Red, and the story is as follows. Mei Li is a 13-year-old girl who is torn between being her mother's obedient daughter and the chaos of her youth. As if that were not enough, when she gets too excited, she turns into a big red panda. The film is starring Rosalie Chiang, Sandra Oh, Ava Morse, Matre Ramakrishnan, Hein Park, Orion Lee, Wai Ching Ho and James Hong. It is written and directed by Dami Shi and written by Julia Cho. Here to join me today for this podcast review, I have Nicole Ackman. Hello, everybody. Josh Parham. Hello, hello. And joining us as a guest for this episode for the first time on the MVP podcast, we have Katie Smith Wong. Hello. Katie, thank you so much for being here today. Oh, thanks for having me. 
Absolutely. Very excited to talk about this movie, mostly because of the fact that it's another Pixar movie, which I know at this stage, you know, getting a Pixar film is part of a course of the yearly uh, cinematic schedule. We get about two of these a year now, but they have such a track record for providing us with stories that teach us so many valuable lessons. And the storytelling in a Pixar movie is so, so tight usually uh, that it's very rare that they actually have a misfire. And I'm very happy to say that Turning Red is a movie that takes some risks for the company and presents uh, some themes and in a way that, quite honestly, I don't really see that many animated family-friendly films uh, doing. Uh, It feels, in a way, sort of groundbreaking. Uh, Unfortunately, the thing that I still can't kind of wrap my head around is that Disney is insistent on not releasing uh, these movies in theaters for people to enjoy uh, due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, where a lot of other studios are releasing their films in theaters. This is streaming on Disney+, Plus, which, from a business model standpoint, I guess I understand because they're trying to grow that base, and this is a great opportunity for uh, young kids, especially young uh, girls, to watch this at home uh, with their uh, parents, and maybe it could be educational in some way. I think that this movie is uh, an enjoyable film in so many regards, and I'm very excited to talk about it here with all of you. So with that said, why don't we actually first start off with our guest here, Katie. Katie, general thoughts on Turning Red. Uh, what did you think overall? I, I really loved it. I mean, I'm not just saying that. It's really hard to kind of say anything else besides I loved it because it was so it – fe- it was a very personal reflection as well as narrative because, you know, there were so many instances that I could relate to in terms of Maylie's character, as well as the relationship with her mother, her angst about growing up and and everything, and as well as the culture that Demi Sheep installed in the film. I, it was just so relatable, even more than like other films about Asian culture, like Crazy Rich Asians or even Shang-Chi to an extent. This one hit me on a very personal level, which I, which, you know, when you grow up with a lack of relatable role models in 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 film, because everyone's like, you know, it's all Hollywood. You needed someone to kind of say you need someone that you could say you say, oh, this person's like me. They have the same issues and you could relate to them. Whereas so for this for this to come out now is such a such a. For me, a breath for fresh air. And we've seen a couple of uh, takes uh, from some people on the internet. I'm not going to get into specifics here because I don't want to necessarily throw people under the bus, but let's call it like it is. There are people that are, I think, are being a little ignorant uh, with the themes of this movie, saying that they can't relate to it. And I would ask those people to take a closer look at what the movie is uh, trying to communicate here, because I actually do think that there is a lot to relate to. You don't have to be a 13-year-old girl to understand like what Turning Red is trying to communicate. And if you are, or if you're a woman in general uh, that has gone through anything that Maylee has is going through in this movie, more power to you, I say. Uh, so I love hearing uh, that it worked for you on that personal level. That's really, really great to hear. Kicking it over next to Nicole Ackman. Nicole, what did you think of Turning Red? In some ways, Turning Red reminds me of the movie Eighth Grade, which I think is a fantastic film. Oh, yeah. But just in that 
it was so hard to watch Oh, because I felt so much secondhand embarrassment. I was like, I don't want to relive this time in my life. Thank you very much. But I do think it really does capture something about being like a preteen, early teenage girl and trying to sort of, you know, figure out the changes in your body, figure out how your relationship is changing with your parents and sort of navigate that balancing act of, being a friend and being a daughter. And I think that it speaks to all of these themes really eloquently. I think that it's really fun to see something that's a little bit outside of the normal Pixar style. This obviously has some like anime influence as well. And I just think that these characters are so fun. And I will also say I literally just finished watching Embrace the Panda, which is uh, on Disney Plus as well. And it's about a 45 minute uh, little like mini documentary on the making of this film. And I liked the movie before, but then watching all of these women talk about the making of it and seeing like all the women involved in the making of this film and hearing them talk about their relationships with their children and with their parents made me love this film even more. So I definitely recommend checking that out after you watch uh, Turning Red. All right. And Josh Parham. I am going to echo a lot of what's already been said. I really, really liked this movie a lot more than actually I was expecting to, just given Pixar's output lately, which I have enjoyed. But I have to admit, I've been kind of missing a little spark from their movies lately. Like, they're all enjoyable, but I haven't really found myself, like, absolutely falling in love with them. Like, I really did with this one. I... I very much responded to the story that's at the center here, which, yes, is kind of familiar. You know, you we can see that there are tropes of the child trying to be independent and finding their own way while battling their parents. But it also felt so steeped in a very specific perspective that I really appreciated. And it actually made those themes feel actually a little bit more universal in a in a weird way it is sort of that way that you kind of emphasize the specificity and actually you can recognize how it is applicable to other areas in your life and i thought it was handled so beautifully and i really just love the storytelling here it's so funny and charming as well i love the voice acting too and yeah this movie really just won me over in a really big way and i actually think it's one of pixar's better efforts lately i actually think it's one of it might be their best film since Coco to me. I think it's that strong. It's a really, really good movie that I very much enjoyed. High praise. High praise indeed. Um, I've seen this film twice now, and on my first viewing, I liked it. I liked it pretty well. I was not in the love it territory, uh, but I decided to give it a second viewing before we did this podcast today, and I'm actually very glad that I did because I picked up on some things on a second viewing that I missed on a first viewing, um, and it really enlightened and illuminated just so much my viewing experience overall that I'm now pretty firmly in the same camp as the rest of you where I pretty much think I love this movie (laughs) (laughs) for a multitude of different reasons. Um, And I think the number one thing I keep coming back to is how airtight the storytelling is, even despite those tropes that you're saying here, Josh, that we've seen, you know, done before on a broad level. But this feels so highly specific. Uh, The character of Meili is someone that is, I think, very fully fleshed out 
and someone that I, you know, even as me, like a straight white male, I found qualities in her that I was able to relate to in ways that like, I'm sure some of you all are probably like, oh, well, wasn't expecting Matt to say that. (laughs) Like the secondhand embarrassment that Nicole was mentioning before. I think we've all felt that from our parents at one point or another, or even just the overbearing nature of an overprotective uh, parental figure in our lives. Something about the way that like this very human experience is depicted here gave this film, despite its, you know, remember, we had body transformation and soul, right? There's another body transformation here, but at least here, the metaphor is more obvious and straightforward and thus more universal in a way that I think uh, Soul was communicating where I think the messaging of that kind of got a little lost in translation. Here it's on the nose. It's very, very obvious, but I think that actually helps the storytelling uh, tremendously, this being a uh, metaphor for uh, menstruation. Yeah, well, I mean, they skid right into it. Like, it doesn't, like, there is a scene where it's actually brought up, which, you know, is sort of kind of daring in a, in a Pixar movie that that conversation is actually just brought up very plainly. And it's almost like the movie stating, like, yeah, we have no pretense about what the metaphor here is. But I also think that kind of actually frees up the rest of the story to not be shackled by that analogy, that we know what it is right away. And it actually allows for deeper character growth and a more interesting exploration into what this movie is actually more so about, which is discussing identity and that relationship with your parents, which I've just found to be so just so interesting to really dive into. And I'm so glad the movie was had its own convictions in the storytelling to just really be confident in what its messages were. And I really appreciated that. I also have to say the fact that you actually see like a package of pads on mm-hmm. screen. Uh, first of all, I've never seen that animated before. Right. But I also you rarely see that in a film at all. And considering like how often I see that in my life as a woman, it was like really, honestly, like it really took me aback, mostly because of the realization that like, oh, I haven't seen that before. And that's kind of weird that I haven't. So I thought that it was so cool that they were so open about it. And I do think it's something that like could be really helpful for you know, young people who are at that age where they're going to start experiencing that and sort of taking away some of the stigma around it. Because I know, like, when I was uh, at that age, like, it was such a, like, taboo, hush-hush thing. And I really do think that this film could sort of help it not be so scary just because of, like, you know, it's it's been seen in a movie. Like, and I think that that can be really helpful for a lot of young people in particular. I agree. Um, the fact that they ha- is quite a subtle um, topic. They've kind of they, they're dealt with it so um, subtly. It's not like yep. you know, May's freaking out that that she can't ask her mother. Her mother actually approaches her to for help. That's not the kind of thing that a lot of girls see. So there's that also that trepidation. It's not okay to ask your mom for help when it comes to this kind of thing. So for to have this. At a, on an animated level, which also relates to young audiences, it says that it's okay to ask about this. It's a natural process. You shouldn't be freaked out by it. And I think that's kind of something that 
a lot of filmmakers are afraid to kind of cover because it is like Nicole said, such a such a hush hush thing. Yeah, that's like kind of the thing that I loved on the second viewing. Actually, was I liked the way that the movie took what could be a topic that I'm sure executives at Disney were sweating over during boardroom meetings about how are we going to do this? Like, this is too much, it's too taboo that we can't, we can't, we can't talk about women's changing bodies and blood and blah, we can't do that. Um, but the way that they get around that in this by having it be about her turning into this big giant red panda and about also too sensitively communicating without it being, you know, women can't control their emotions is like, you know, the the phrase that you sometimes hear, right? And not having it boil just down to that, but actually exploring in a multifaceted way internally through this character's perspective, how she is feeling, what she does to cope with the changes that are going on. Like this movie goes deeper in a way that I thought was really well communicated outside of a generic, oh, well, you know, this is just her time in the month and she can't handle, you know, what she's going through. It, it just, it could have been so demeaning and it, honestly, very disrespectful and, and in bad taste. And the movie does not ever go into that territory at all. And I think a large reason for that, as Nicole was alluding to earlier, is that this is a project that was mostly developed by women. Absolutely. I think that's a large part of it. And I'm watching the Embrace the Panda feature, I, like, they were talking about things that I didn't even think about while watching it. Like, it's not just a metaphor for menstruation. It's also a metaphor for, like, wider puberty in terms of she literally gets hairy. She has body odors. Like, all the sort of things that come with puberty at that age. Not to mention her mother discovering that she's going to start yeah, liking boys. <laughs> exactly. And it sort of, like, encompasses all of that, which I think is so cool to see how, like, the metaphor sort of is even more... Because at first, whenever I watched it, I was like, I don't know that this metaphor totally works. And then whenever I thought of it as, like, a larger metaphor just for puberty and sort of that age in general, I was like, oh, no, it's actually quite thorough. And it even goes deeper than that in terms of this sort of commenting on, as you get older, how the relationship with your parents changes and evolves. And I even thought that was handled in a really unique way because i think about like that scene right after they go to that convenience store that like horrifying moment when her mom shows <laughs> that clerk the pictures and yes that like, stressed all... me out more oh, than a horror movie ever has I, like... you know what it's, it, it kind of brought back those um memories of school because from what i remember from my childhood is like my mom was always like my biggest advocate and she will always be ne she was never afraid to throw down if someone crossed my path so yep. when when my when so when Ming like Sandro's character she just marches into the supermarket thinking that I was like don't don't corrupt my daughter. I was like, yeah, I can see that happening. <laughs> For me, it was the scene where uh, she's at the school hiding behind the tree and she yeah. goes, you forgot your pads. I was like, kill me. Just kill oh, me yeah. now. But, but the, that's the kind of thing that I think might put off like girls asking their mom for help because they were just so, you know, there's that new level of paranoia and concern that they weren't really exposed to but now they was like oh god everything's changing so i have to change how i how i behave and it's like <laughs> and for that to be in this animated film it's like teaching young girls is that like, this is going to happen it's like 
okay. <laughs> but, yeah. yeah. And what I also just find fascinating is that you see that Mylin is still in this mentality of wanting to please her mom, even after such embarrassing things that happen. It's like that moment after the, the convenience store, you see her in a room saying like, no, you disappointed her. You should be better. And I think in an, any other animated movie, we would be seeing a scene of her like cursing out her mom or like saying, why did she do that? She doesn't under, understand me. And that's like, that was another thing where I thought, man, that's pretty unique for this movie. I don't think I've ever seen a relationship between parent and child handled in quite this way. And it was just another element of the storytelling here that I thought was really detailed and thorough and kind of a breath of fresh air, honestly, even in a premise that would normally have very familiar trappings, but it was executed in a really creative way. The other thing, too, that I keep coming back to time and time again, uh, Nicole, you mentioned eighth grade earlier, and I understand that you're mentioning it more for its horrific anxiety inducing moments. But what I felt like that movie really captured was what it meant to be uh, at this age in eighth grade, 13, 14 years old, and really putting you in the headspace of uh, a, a, a young uh, woman at like this stage in her life, right? And this character here, this protagonist of uh, Maylene, is one who I found was it, it, she reminded me a lot of my young of my youngest sister, actually, who was into One Direction and had so much energy. Um, and at the same time, the energy was sometimes. It was always coming from a good place, but, you know, you just felt like it was a little, like, tad bit overbearing at times. Uh, but it also, like, everything was the end of the world. Every <laughs> Everything in life was so dramatic. Um, and I just found, like, the voice acting here that uh, Rosalie uh, Chiang was able to com uh, convey through this character really helped with that. I was a little taken aback at first by how energetic this movie was initially. It took me a little bit to kind of settle into its rhythm. But once I did, I found that she wasn't being overly animated, let's say, for the sake of it. But it actually was befitting of how a lot of 13-year-old girls that are going through this stage of puberty, they really do act like. Oh my God. My sister, for those who don't know, uh, is eight years younger than I am. And I distinctly remember her and her friends at this age. And they'd like come over to, to you know, if I was home and they'd come over to our house or something, I'd be like, I'm low key terrified. Yeah. Like, <laughs> they have so much energy. And I don't like, I don't have a quarter of that energy now. No. Like, did I ever have that? But, but we did. Like, and I think it, it is something about particularly you see her sort of having this energy when she's with these friends of hers. And I yes. think that that's really important. And I think. It is so nice to see an animated film like this where a young girl has these really important friendships, these really close friendships, because I do think that that's something that we don't typically see in an animated film like this. You know, you typically get like a an animal sidekick instead. And I think that whenever you're at that age, it's when your friends start really becoming important to you and you really start building your identity sort of around theirs as well. And I felt like this did such a great job of showing that. I love that you say building your identity around theirs because her three friends in this have such distinct identities. Yep. <laughs> and, and they all felt so believable to me too, in terms of the monotone one, the hyper energetic one. And 
Uh, I, I guess now that I'm thinking about it, I guess her um, the tomboy uh, one, Miriam. I, I guess she was like probably the most uh, quote unquote normal one. But I mean, still, I agree, Nicole, that that connection and especially the fact that her friends in this movie support her through what she's going through. That was incredibly heartwarming to say. Yeah. And especially is because, you know, they don't judge May's like condition and they're just there to, and they they and that fact that May actually finds a source of comfort in their unconditional support. She's you know she finds herself more calm and more herself around her than with her mother. That's the kind of that's the kind of female that bond that that girlhood that a lot of a lot of animated films may not be able to convey, especially with when you have a narrative that's set in school everyone's either you know either excuse my word language but a bitch or like like (laughs) stereotypical characters or judgmental characters whereas these girls are they're 100 percent behind me and they you know they 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 bring her out of her shell and and they they kind of make her they kind of inspire her to teach her that it's okay to be different it's okay to be you know it's not you don't have to we're not going to be judging they're not going to judge her just accept her and that's the kind of message that a lot of people can take from this and then you know it's interesting too because like the male characters in this movie i can think of uh two off the top of my head there is uh the bully at school uh what's his name tyler right yeah tyler yeah this and douchebag <laughs> oh god i can't i can't stand him in this movie oh my gosh i when when May like jumps on him and is like roaring at him as the beast and everything, I was like, "Oh, get him, get him!" I was so so fed up with that character. But then, of course, in that moment, as we've seen in other stories before, uh, the bully becomes uh, a puddling mess when uh, the one that's being bullied confronts them. And I, I like I like that trope. I didn't mind how it was executed here at all. And then, of course, uh, it's revealed at the end that. The, the bully is uh, just as much of a fan of this band as for town as they are. Um, <laughs> but then, you know, her father, who's very much the, you know, side character who I, I've, I feel like we've seen this trope also before. Uh, you know, the <laughs> the father who's just like constantly like staying out of it, minding his own business. Uh, <laughs> and then he has a heartwarming one scene uh, with his daughter that you know, it was well-placed within the story, um, and it really, I thought, effectively uh, communicated everything it needed to between their relationship. It didn't need to be anything more than that one scene, and I thought that was a very, very good decision to give that character that moment, uh, because it's important to, to it's important to establish that, yes, this is primarily a mother-daughter relationship movie, uh, but there's also another parent involved. And if you are, you know, not going to do anything with that parent, then you might as well just make it a single mom uh, and daughter relationship movie. But they didn't do that. So I'm glad that they had that one scene uh, that was effective enough to justify that character's existence. I also like the fact that he's actually, he's in the store. He's involved in the whole in May's in the in the condition that May has. Yeah. He knows about the pandas. He knows about the tradition and stuff. But he knows that he doesn't have enough experience, firsthand experience, to like provide that kind of um, to be fully involved. So he's like he's almost like an impartial 
confident mm-hmm. in a way you know he and and that's i think when that scene comes up between him and and, and maybe that's the kind of like refresher that there is someone other than this outside of her amelia may and her mother mm-hmm. so no i totally agree i also think like i just love a good dad model <laughs> um, and i i really like that we do get one in this movie and I also think it's important to sort of show because it sort of helps bring us back around to the idea that like even though we're seeing May have so much conflict with her mother that she does have a really loving family and like she you know does feel very supported by her father and I also love the fact that we get to see her grandmother and like all the aunties like oh my I god that was <laughs> the aunties so entrance fun. is hilarious to me I it's loved so love love their introduction to the story so much <laughs> I, I feel also you need to have that kind of extended family dynamic to make this a, it also celebrates Chinese culture because my my mom is one of five sisters wow um four sisters before sorry Four sisters. So, <laughs> Still wow. <laughs> yeah. So whenever they, when I, my childhood was, uh, what I remember from them is that when they come together, it's like this humongous part, bubble of noise and chatter and everyone's in each other's business and everyone's gossiping. So to see that, but they also are there for each other. So it extends that level of support that has been swimming in this, in this film, but elevating it to another level. And this movie does a really good job of also exploring uh, another uh, theme that we've seen in uh, films such as this before in dealing with Asian culture, which is putting family first above yourself. And I like that that is, you know, we've seen it so many times, right, in other movies before where uh, the character, the protagonist in this case of uh, May, she, by the end of the movie, is able to put herself first, but also not lose the respect and trust of her family and able to find a delicate balance between the two. And her parents are also satisfied and okay with that as well by the end. And I just find that to be, uh, once again, a very relatable and heartwarming experience because as great as it is to please your parents and go above and beyond to seek their approval, and when you get it, it feels tremendous. You also have to le- learn to live for yourself and be independent. And this is the kind of stuff that, like I was saying earlier, anyone can relate to this. Uh, this movie is not just the one thing uh, that a lot of, especially male critics, are focusing on. Like This movie has a lot of layers to it. Exactly. Like that idea of you want to please your parents, you kind of have to get out of their shadow. But as you get older, you need to find your own independence. Like, yeah, that that is something we have seen in other stories. It's a very relatable theme. But here it is also really embedded in a particular cultural perspective. And I think that actually makes it all the more of a richer exploration. The fact that there is this kind of specificity to it while at the same time being universal. And I think that that is a really fascinating element to the storytelling that I just particularly responded to. And I think that even though it may seem familiar, it has enough of its own like individual identity and also just endearing charm to it. Like it's such a a warm embrace of a film that I just felt like in every moment, even if I felt it was being kind of familiar, I still, it still came across to me as a very strong artistic statement that it was making at the same time. And I felt so connected to this world and these characters that it really worked for me. 
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. An, an element of this movie, and I'm sorry, I'm going to I'm going to pivot here a little bit because I, I got to bring up the one thing about this film that to me was a bit of a letdown. I was not a fan of the animation in this, and I think it has to do with the fact that this movie does not take a photo real approach to its animation the same way that we've seen you know some of the animation like last year in soul for example was just completely mind-blowing to the point of how realistic computer graphics have become uh in animated films this to me resembled more of what i would see from honestly like another animation studio and it, it but at the same time somebody was mentioning anime influence before um i can understand like what they're going for in terms of a certain style of animation here but it didn't ever pop in the way that i was hoping to but with that said i do want to add a little ca- caveat to this even though like maybe the visual aesthetic didn't necessarily blow me away two things i was a huge fan of in this were the uh editing and the camera uh, movement, even though it's not a real camera, obviously, but the way that this was storyboarded by uh, Dami Shi, I thought was absolutely extraordinary at times. I, I loved the energy that this movie had. It felt like I was watching an animated Edgar Wright film at times in terms of how kinetic the camera movements were, the editing, the way that it would put you into uh, Mei Li's uh, perspective in her own headspace. There was a lot going on here from a cinematic standpoint and that you could only do an animation that I really appreciated. I just wish that the actual animation was a little bit better. I agree with that. I And my thing is, um, I'm not a huge fan of like the Pixar style of animation in general. And I appreciate that they did something a little bit different. I appreciate the anime influence on this. It's just not for me. And I know that. And that's like purely for me a preference type thing. I much prefer the more like Walt Disney Studios still animation. Like I'm I'm a sucker for like the more hand-drawn look. Uh, I will say though, I really admired Daniel uh, Feinberg was the visual effects supervisor on this and I think that like a lot of how they animate things within the style is really cool 
um, especially with sort of the transformations of her, like between Panda and Girl. And I thought that that was nicely done. And I like that there's a bit of a whimsy to this. Like there's a lot of whimsical moments, which I appreciated, Mm -hmm. particularly as it has to do with the boy band. And I thought that that was quite nice. Yeah. Um, And I will say, like, for all that I'm not a huge fan of this style of animation, the way they animated the Red Panda itself was hella cute. Um, I was a little obsessed with that. And I will be shocked if they don't bring out a whole line of merchandise around this Red Panda. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Because that thing is darling. (laughs) Oh, yeah. They knew what they were doing. They did. (laughs) I I, I do think that the like hyper real moments um, uh, you were mentioning like the boy band, like it's a little like over exaggerated. There's slow motion, these bright lights. And then, like you said, Nicole, her turning into the giant red panda with like the puffy pink smoke or even when uh, her dad is cooking and we get like these phantom camera shots of the close ups of the food that he's making. <laughs> I, I, those are the moments where I think the animation like really comes alive. Yep. Let's have Sorry. more animated food sequences. That's what I'm here for. <laughs> I, I, you know what? The, the, look, the food sequences just took took me back to home because my my dad actually looks like May's dad. So, and he was always the one cooking dinner. So when he's prepare, preparing dinner, and May and her mom are watching a Cantonese soap uh, soap opera, that's that just brought me back to home. But um, with regards to the point about animation, I actually really like the animation because when you have certain themes about growing up and and you know puberty and menstruation all that stuff when you have that at a at, with a certain style i think it resonates better with younger audiences they don't they might not they don't may not be intimidated as much i don't know if that's the right word to say but it's just for me it was just it brought it down to a level that younger audiences will appreciate if it maybe maybe the fact that it's more I don't want to say like like as a demeaning term here, but like cartoony, as opposed to going for photorealism. Yeah, it it yeah. is. But for me, I was not bothered by that quite as much. Um, maybe it's just because I was so enwrapped in the storytelling that the animation style, like yeah, it's not as you said, it, Matt. It isn't going for like any kind of photorealistic depiction it is a little bit more on the cartoonish side but then as was mentioned that does mean that when it gets into the more fantastical kind of elements it's more easy to transition to that like there's some dream sequences too that i think are really interestingly executed and i remember that scene when her mom walks into her room and she's trying not to look at the notebook at, under the bed and it's like this close-up <laughs> of her with sweat coming down. Like, it's a very, like, creatively designed sequence that really can only be done if you have already sort of leaned into the more cartoonish style to it. So, yeah, I really wasn't bothered by the animation all that much and I think there's actually times when it is quite beautifully rendered at the same time. What did you guys think of the uh, music from Billie Eilish, uh, Phineas O'Connell, and uh, Ludwig uh, Göransson, the composer? Oh, all good. <laughs> loved it all. <laughs> loved it. Loved it all. This score is amazing. I was like, I didn't know that it was Göransson at first, and then when his name popped up in the credits, I'm like, oh, okay, that makes sense. It's a it's a great piece of music. I I love it. And yeah, the songs. Oh God, I am in love with the songs too. They they are just so so adorable and so fun and energetic and fit the. T- 
tone of the movie perfectly as well. It, yeah, the music to this film is just top notch to me. I need to know when we're starting the Oscar campaign for Nobody Like You for Best Original <laughs> Song because we're starting it now. Listen, yeah, <laughs> yeah I, think, I remember. I remember a time in my life when I was very young and Backstreet Boys and Sync and a bunch of these other boy bands were like ruling the world, and this just like took me right back and. I got to admit, I found it hella catchy and I loved it so much. <laughs> I, I was in an all girls school when I was younger and I was around in my uh, mid teens when, uh, you know, NSYNC, Backstreet Boys, as well as uh, Take That, which, you know, was were humongous at that point. So seeing, hearing that song and seeing Four Town as they were, it was just like, oh my God, I'm like, 15 I guess it's just it did it had that that but that's that kind of sense of nostalgia that even like old older older women would like um uh, I'm I'm 40 so it's like um I felt that kind of um it took me back to my childhood years I think that's the kind of nostalgia that a lot of people will appreciate and yeah I was wondering when I was watching this why this movie took place in the early 2000s because I saw like all the kids using flip phone cell phones in school and I was like oh is that like and that Tamagotchi yeah 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 (laughs) Yeah. and I I guess you know I I, maybe there's a multitude of different reasons why you would set it in this uh time frame but like maybe for me I was thinking that it's because this was like a era where that kind of boy band like music was at its peak and they just wanted to explore that and they didn't you know it didn't make sense to explore that but then again isn't like bts like this huge boy band today that everybody's also like into i don't know i honestly wonder if it had more to do with wanting to set this because a a lot of the women in the like feature that i watched were talking about how they were sort of inspired by their own childhood and i think that nowadays being at that age is very different because of social media Mm -hmm. and things like that. And I think that you can't really tell a story that feels authentic to today without delving into that. But I think it would have been too much for this story. So I wonder if they were sort of setting it in that time period so that they didn't have to deal with that and could Mm. make a story that was still relatable, but very clearly wasn't meant to reflect you know, 2022. It would have added like another layer of complication to the story yeah, and I mean, maybe exactly. gone off in another subplot or something like that, that the story just didn't need and was maybe distracting. Yeah, yeah. I, I could see that. So too. I think if, if, if the social media was involved and you'll have like videos of mailage being shared and stuff, and then there would just be, it would just, it would just kind of raised it into a direction that didn't need to be raised, you know, for to it just kind of, I think having the lack of social media and like pre-digital age just kind of centered the whole thing in Toronto Chinatown, which is, I think, what Demi Shi wanted to celebrate. That was another thing, too. That's also based on her childhood, right? That's where she grew up, I'm guessing, because I was I was trying to figure out why did it have to be set uh, in Toronto and like you said, in Chinatown and uh, nothing wrong with that. I just found that to be very highly specific. And the only thing that made sense to me from that point was uh, that it was somehow rooted in her upbringing. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Because even like setting it in uh, 2002, which is the year that this movie takes place in, like, I believe that's basically what her age, the uh, director would have been around that time. Yeah, she's she's 34 years old. So 20 years ago. Yeah. 
Yeah, so this is a movie that definitely is very much, I think, rooted in personal experience, which makes sense. Like many filmmakers do that. We've had several movies last year do that. So I think that's probably where it comes from. And I do agree with the kind of narrowness of the approach to this story. It also makes sense to remove a lot of the other complications that we see in the modern world and keep it really focused on the particulars of what they want to explore with this story. And that's a lot easier to set it 20 years ago. And let's not like underplay this. This is the first Pixar film to be solely directed by a woman. Yeah. Cause who didn't have to like even fight for the credit initially. Cause we all know what happened with brave. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it is interesting that like this and brave are quite similar in many ways and that they are at their hearts, like stories about young girls and their mothers uh, and trying to sort of figure out how to navigate that relationship as the young women are getting older. Uh, and I think that I, I, um, I love sort of seeing that sort of story get told in a very like different setting and different culture, because that is what makes me personally like brave is one of my favorite Pixar films. And it's because that sort of story is so impactful to me. So it's lovely to see that sort of get another outing. And then the voice acting in this too, uh, especially from uh, Rosalie and Sandra Oh, uh, I I think they're so terrific in this. Um, I was really taken aback by Sandra Oh's uh, performance, actually. I probably shouldn't have been, but like I found her work to be very, very, very good. Uh, Rosalie, I think, you know, it's interesting because I was thinking a lot about Stephanie Beatrice and Encanto recently, where that was also a very fully fleshed out and animated performance, uh, vocal performance, uh, that really brought a high level of energy, intelligence, wit, humor. Um, and I found that Rosalie Chiang was able to do, do that here too. Uh, but it also at the same time felt like you know, in ways like I've I've heard this before, uh, whereas Sandra Oh, I thought was able to find pockets of warmth in Ming Lee's uh, character that I found her vocal performance to be the highlight of the film for me personally. I think she captured the paranoid mother perfectly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'd say. I mean, I, I still can't get over when she turns into her own uh, big giant panda at the end of the movie and she's at the concert and she's like, but then, but, then, but then you see like why it's kind of, it also explains why almost why May so uh, hell bent on, on pleasing her mother. You don't want her to be angry because God forbid what happens when she's You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. <laughs> Such a great reveal, too. Oh, I loved it when they were at the concert and you just see the shadow of her in the distance coming towards the, the, the concert. Oh, my God. It becomes it was so a kaiju cool. film in its third act. It was amazing. I loved it. And it, they were still able to get at the heart of the emotion, too, at the end. And when everybody else transforms, like it was a really great, I thought, finale that was able to elevate the stakes in an authentic way, but didn't lose the emotional core at the same time. Well, there's a lot of moments where uh, Mei Lee is able to stand up to her mother uh, with some of these mic drop lines that really, for me as an audience member watching it, I gasped sometimes because the movie just plays up those moments so, so well. Like when she says, like, I'm sorry, I'm not perfect and I'll never be like you. And then she actually like she strikes her mother. <laughs> like, I 
was like, holy shit. Um, but I found like these moments to be so impactful and they hit me harder than I was anticipating because like you said, Josh, the drama of that relationship was so well developed up until that point that by the time we get to the third act, it was just hitting very hard. Uh, with that said, we can go over to final thoughts, I think, here uh, for Turning Red. So, uh, Katie, for final thoughts, anything you want to reiterate or something that we didn't talk about that you want to mention, uh, feel free to bring it up now. Um, there was one thing that I really, really love about this film, um, even because it is a, cel- Asian, it's a celebration of Asian culture, Asian talent, is the inclusion of Cantonese. It is it has been a bit of a sore spot in certain in certain films where there's a lot of emphasis on mandarin but as i am a cantonese speaker therefore it's like sure you need to celebrate that a lot of a lot of people like immigrants or second second generation chinese chinese american chinese canadian chinese british speak cantonese mm. the fact that they include this is Oh, it it just made it just made my day. That's nice. I like I like hearing that. That's great. Uh, anything else? Uh, I think everyone should just watch it. I think everyone that there's so much to to take from this. I don't think people should be put off the fact that it's got an Asian protagonist. I think it has so many relatable themes and relatable concepts that a lot of people could take from it. It is so relatable that it will be one of those films that I think a lot of people could could go back to maybe 10, 20 years later and, and see themselves in it. Or even, even like younger audiences now could watch it and then watch it like when they've grown up and see how much has how much this film kind of prepared them almost for their first stage into adulthood. Anyway, that's how I think. That's what I think. Yeah, totally. Nicole, what about you? First of all, I do just want to say that anyone saying that, you know, they can't relate to this film is first of all telling on themselves a little bit. Uh, but also, I think it's such a like dumb concept in so many ways because most Pixar films up to this point have had a male protagonist. And so the men being like, oh, I can't relate because it's about, you know, a young girl. I'm like, okay, so are you saying that like, all the rest of these Pixar films weren't for me. That just seems like such a strange argument to me. But otherwise, I do just want to urge again, after you watch this, first of all, like you said, Matt, I watched this twice and I liked it a lot better on the second round. So I do think it's one that sort of deserves a second watch. But also I just want to urge everyone to watch Embrace the Panda because it gave me such a deeper appreciation for this film, particularly the fact that it was made largely during quarantine. And they talk about sort of how they worked on it during quarantine and still tried to, you know, remain bonded as a team and seeing these women sort of reflect upon several of them became mothers, like while working on the movie um, and sort of how that influenced it as well. And it gave me such a greater appreciation for it. So I really do think that this is one that everybody should watch at least once, if not twice, and then watch the feature on it as well. I didn't even know that they had that, actually. So I'm looking forward to catching this uh, after we're done here. I, I I didn't know that they had that on Disney+. Plus. I only watched the movie itself. So I'm very much looking forward to that. Josh? Uh, I'm going to end with two things that are 
just like the few criticisms that I do have about the movie. One of them is legit and the other one's like kind of silly, I'll admit. But the the serious one is that I do think that this movie took a little bit for me to kind of get into. We mentioned how it is kind of very manic at the beginning of the movie. And it is a tone setter for like the relationship between the friends in here. But I will admit it was a little just ever so slightly a bit off putting just in terms of kind of getting into the rhythm. I think eventually the movie did win me over in a really big way. But that first like maybe 10, 15 minutes, I will admit I struggled just ever so slightly. And I think that if you have similar feelings, just sort of stick with it and it will kind of get into a nicer rhythm. But you do kind of have to get over that initial hump, I think, at the beginning. I had a similar reaction with Mitchell's versus the Machines last year where it was like, oh, we're OK, it's it's this kind of movie. And, you know, it takes you by surprise, I think, with how much energy it's coming at you with. But you're right, though. At the end, it lands. It sticks to landing at the end emotionally, thematically. And that's all that really matters. If they can win you over in the end and everything else is kind of negated. But uh, I, 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 too, had a similar experience while watching this same same thought process. Yeah. But once you get past it, the movie does a lot to kind of pull you in further. So I just would just say if you're feeling that in the beginning, I felt it, too. Just sort of stick with it. And it'll get a lot better. Uh, and then the other thing that I thought about was I I do love these songs a lot, but I did also think about how Billie Eilish was like maybe an infant when this movie is supposed to be set. <laughs> and I felt that particularly when one of the lyrics includes the phrase ride or die, which as somebody who was like 12, 13 years old around this time period, I don't remember that really being a popular saying around that time. So that did stick out to me a little bit. It's like, oh, well, there's your signal that these songs are written by somebody who had no context about when they were actually released. <laughs> but it was a very, very small thing. I still love all those songs. I love the music. And I really still admired this film a great deal. I think it has such strong convictions in its storytelling, and it really did win me over in the end. Katie, you might you might be able to provide insight on this. I don't know. Like, can you talk about like the significance of the red panda in like Asian culture a little bit? Um, to be honest, it's not something that I really have a lot of experience with. I mean, but for but for I have to admit, I was I was really grateful that they did focus on a red panda rather than sway into the cinematic trope of dragons with Asian culture because yeah. it's like it was just something different i mean it had it still added the mythical aspect to it but you know dragons have just been overused Mm -hmm. in my eyes so have something new something fluffy something cute that fits in with the animation style um was a really nice breath it was a breath of fresh air in terms of of a culture but um i'm really sorry it's not something that i'm really uh no 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 no. but uh really familiar with I think you make a really good point about the overuse of dragons. Um, now, all I want in a Shang-Chi sequel is for the third act to be a CGI battle with giant red pandas at this point now. In the feature, they did say at one point that they liked that it was an animal that was native to China, but had uh, the colors of the Canadian flag. Oh, okay. So yeah, I'm sure. The fact that she, that the fact that she is specifically like, um, you know, Asian Canadian is like important to the film. Mm-hmm. So I thought that that was a neat point that like had not occurred to me on my own. 
Plus the red also kind of has that hint towards the menstruation side. I know that sounds gross, yep. but it could be. No, it's <laughs> true. Well, I think it's very intentional. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and then her father even says to her at one point, red is a lucky color. Exactly. Yeah, definitely. Th- that's never really explored as to what he means by that or why. And I was wondering if anybody else like took a moment to think about what he might have meant by that statement. I think because red... Red, you know, you get red um, licey or like, you know, envelopes, pockets of money and gold and stuff. It's, it, I think it's just something that all Asians know is a lucky colour. We wear red to weddings and celebrations and everything like that. And it's so, I think not, you know what, not a lot of people might, as an Asian, I didn't really question it. Because maybe because I just think, oh, okay, it's red. We all, we know what red means, mm-hmm. but I think it just maybe needed a bit more clarification in terms of to the significance of the color. Might yeah. be a bit more important. That's like one of those things that like the line is said in Asian culture can pick it up better than uh, obviously because I'm the one asking the question here. I was like, oh, I don't know what he means by that. <laughs> yeah, but at the same time, I think you just need to know like it is important in the culture. Like they mention about lucky numbers and we know yeah. the concept of lucky numbers. And sure, a, a color could be lucky, too, even if I don't know the full context of it. Like, yeah, I was able to go with it. And I was also going to say that uh, Speaking of red, like when they get the red hair, that was also something I really liked as a design detail, too. They all look great with that that red hair, all those characters. Yeah. Uh, Devin, the hot local uh, convenience store boy, I love that he was kind of like the mopey, don't care type. And yet they are idolizing him. Oh, when when there is a line in there where somebody says he looks like a hobo and then somebody <laughs> says, but a hot hobo. Like, <laughs> Oh, I felt attacked personally. Dagger like, to I, my I heart. Yes. Person. I, think it's, I am the person going, but a hot it, hobo. Yes. But it's like the idea is that there's this older guy who's single and like, you know, that it's like not their age, not in the school or in school, but not mm-hmm. in their age. It's someone like, ah, you know, that kind of feeling. This movie did a really good job of capturing crushes of teenage girls, especially when we get to the Four Town concert at the end, the way that that crowd is animated to react to their songs, hilarious. Yes. I they were like they were crying. It was like it was like being transported back to a Beatles concert back in the day. <laughs> you know, oh, it's fantastic. I have a lot of notes here. I love the I, oh my god, this was one of my favorite laugh out loud lines in the movie. And why are they called Four Town if there's five of them? Yeah. Uh, I love the scene where Mei Li is uh, screaming into her pillow. It's all muffled in her bedroom after being embarrassed. They do it in a kind of a montage style. There was one thing I didn't get was that after the parents find out about her condition, they essentially strip her bedroom. So all she has is a mattress. Oh, yeah. So she can't break anything. Yeah, but that's like. But that kind of, kind of, they might it kind of gives the impression that they don't trust her not to break anything. I think it they don't. Like, <laughs> yeah. If I but it's like, dude, that's a bit harsh. She can have like you know a chair, yeah, or a mirror, <laughs> or somewhere you know a wardrobe. She has to get dressed, you know. So it just feels like to have her that get taking take away from everything was a bit too harsh. Another uh, funny line in this that I loved was when one of her friends goes, are you a werewolf? Incredible. Uh, when she sees her as the big red panda for the first time. Yeah. And- her friend, her friends in this are, are, to me, 
hysterical. I, I, I loved her friends in this movie so, so much. I thought they were fantastic. And I love, as I mentioned before, they all had like distinct personalities as well. Even though, I apologize, I can't really name them off the top of my heads, unfortunately, but I remember them. <laughs> Especially when they, she, one appreciates the fluffiness of her, and her eyes. It just go like Speaking that. of fluffiness, uh, her parents testing her to keep her emotions under control and oh. the fluffy, cute cats that they oh put out God. in front of her. That was, that was one of my favorite scenes. I just felt like, oh, God, what are they going to do? What are they going to do? And then you see these kittens, and I just thought, oh. Even I, like, oh my God. watching this as a viewer, I saw these cats, and they're not even real. They're animated, but they're animated in such a way where even I had this visceral reaction to the movie where I was like, oh, <laughs> I, I couldn't contain it. I don't know how she did it. <laughs> oh. But that just shows how good the that that's what's like how good the animation works in in those moments how like how it can able how it's able to bring out that kind of emotion that you feel like the same way how can you control it mm-hmm. uh, another moment that I was uh, able to relate to was I too once made a PowerPoint for my parents on why <laughs> I should get concert tickets. Uh, and I love that Maylee goes that extra distance to try and do that here. That was my go-to move to get anything from my parents. The amount of PowerPoints <laughs> I made. Like <laughs> I remember I remember I made the PowerPoint and the response I got was, now how come you can't put this much effort into your actual schoolwork? <laughs> I just kind of I remember going to a specific boy band concert. I'm not gonna say which because I don't think they the well known they were well known in America. They I had to eat certain amount of candy bars to get a ticket i got the ticket i just told my mom that i was going (laughs) (laughs) i mean i don't think powerpoint was really readily available by that point so i just called told mom i was like mom can you just drive me to this concert and pick me up (laughs) all right okay (laughs) but i I don't think my yeah because my parents used to work all the time i don't think they could really take in a powerpoint presentation mm-hmm. so i felt i felt like i I'm, i was saving them i was saving them a lot of trouble by, by cutting out the middleman <laughs> the scene where she uh stands up to her mother and she's saying i'm i wish she, she says like i like gyrating i'm 13 deal with it <laughs> <laughs> uh. i wanted to die <laughs> <laughs> And this is like a very tiny little detail, but at the concert, the audience's reaction to the big giant monster spectacle, if you turn on the subtitles and you see like some of the things that the crowd is saying, like, is this a part of the show? This isn't cool. I want a refund. (laughs) Like, (laughs) I love that the audience thought like that this was actually like part of the show and they were kind of like unfazed by it at first. Hey, hey, if a boy band was willing to put out a humongous giant panda as part of their show, I wouldn't want a refund. Also, uh, the (laughs) use of the Four Town song, uh, that kind of coming back, actually, like, and sung via acapella. I I really just thought the usage of the song in the movie was really well done, even despite the fact that it's this boy band catchy song, you know, that you would, like, hear on the radio. Its usage in the movie was really well-placed, I thought. And I also liked how at the end they mix it in with the traditional chanting yes. that needs to happen for the ceremony. Yes. So it's yeah. like even another somewhat of a subtle 
notions of this idea of kind of blending tradition with forging ahead with your own identity. And I thought that was actually a really interesting way to sell that theme and not do it over, you know, not being overbearing with it, but it's actually a little bit more subtle and just here are these two pieces of music that mean a lot to these characters and they're merging together and it fits very perfectly with the overall theme to the film. And my final note here, big fuck yes energy (laughs) when she says, my panda, my choice, mom. Yeah. Fuck yes. Definitely. Loved it. All right, so, great out of 10. I got to admit the animation style holds me back a bit, but I'm going to give this a very strong recommendation regardless of a 7 out of 10, and I mean that like in a very, very positive way. I I feel like it's so close to being an 8, and it might be over time. I'm actually going to give myself a little bit of distance. I'm going to watch the documentary uh, that Nicole brought up here, and I'm going to revisit this, I think, later in the year once we've seen more animated films and then i'll do uh maybe a reevaluation because i could see this turning into an eight for me but personally the animation just kind of held me back a bit at times from putting it on another tier if you will over but overall great storytelling great voice acting love the music i had a really really good time with this and i thought that its messaging was uh very unique important and one that can be used as a great educational tool for young kids um, Katie, what grade would you give it out of 10? Um, I think I would give it a nine, uh, a very solid nine. I, like I said, I loved, I loved the fact that it has such a strong cultural resonance in it. In it. There was, I loved the fact that they were brave and bold enough to explore themes that not a lot of animated films dare not to go to. But I think a little bit more clarity into maybe a bit more insight into the culture rather just, than just providing it on face value could have been could have brought a lot more depth into May's uh, identity and uh, it would just bring a bit more resonance I feel so mm-hmm. I think uh, I think a nine for me all right Nicole Ackman I was originally a seven and I think I'm gonna go ahead and stay with that for now but I definitely am tearing between a seven and an eight and it's like a seven with a I highly recommend it. Still. Yeah, same. Um, mm-hmm. It's not one of my like favorite, favorite Pixar movies. And I still like, I think any animated film that I watch for a while is going to be colored by how much I loved Encanto. So I, I do agree with you, Matt. I want to revisit it like later in the year and sort of see what I think then, because it, it very easily could become an eight, but I'm going to stick with a seven for now. Josh Parm. I am going to land at an 8 out of 10 for this one. I was really, really taken with it and felt, as I said, a connection to it that I really hadn't gotten to since something like Coco. And, you know, I don't think it's quite on the same level as something like that. But in terms of how I felt about it, it really kind of got me to a very similar place. And I really do think it's one of their stronger efforts lately. So, yeah, I really, really like this movie. All right. Now, in terms of its awards potential, obviously there's awards potential. It's well-reviewed, and it's a Pixar movie. And we've seen over the last couple of years that despite at what time of the year that it's released in, it can still manage to go all the way to the end of year. However, I have a very cynical and depressing feeling that the industry might reject this movie in favor of Lightyear coming out later this year. Um, But it depends on how strong the field is. Like, if it's a weak year, then it's going to get in. Uh, But I think that 
I could unfortunately see a world where a lot of the takes, uh, and we mentioned before, most of them ignorant and not well-based in my opinion. I could see enough of that from people like silently behind closed doors, like, oh, I'm not going to publicly say that I don't like this movie, but, you know, I'm not going to vote for it for this guild or whatever. Like, I could see this movie being unjustly cast aside. I do think, though, that this is one of those movies that I can see kids really enjoying. And I sometimes wonder, particularly at the Oscars themselves, (laughs) um, how much of the animated nominations are just like whatever the people's kids have had on the TV. Oh, I mean, like Encanto is such a great example of that recently. Right. And so I think that that could be a thing that gets it in and particularly as well, because it does have that music element to it, which I think sort of helps animated films sort of stay more in a conversation typically. So they got to get those, uh, they got to get those fluffy panda toys out there. Like you were saying before fluffy pandas out, then this has got its place. (laughs) Um, I, I really do feel like with, you know, unless there's something that comes out later from what I know, I feel like there's room for this movie sure, this year. Sure, I think so too. And I, I personally really hope that it does make it to the Oscars. For one thing, just because it would be so cool to see that happen for the team that made this film. Um, and and I think it's going to do well with children. So that gives me hope. Yeah, it's really tough to say because we're so early in the year right now. Like we don't know yet. It's premiering in a few days, but we don't know yet like – Apollo Ten and a Half, the new Richard Linklater uh, film. We don't know about Guillermo del Toro's uh, Pinocchio movie. We don't know what Bob's Burgers movie is going to do. We don't know, like, a lot of these movies outside of just, like, the regular typical Disney machine. I don't know if this is going to be a strong or a weak year yet for animation because there's so much outside of the Disney Pixar realm that could always rise up. But, I mean, it's very, very clear, I think, based on property placement and uh marketing emphasis that they're probably they're the one that they're going to focus on will probably be light year but i would like to see then turning red kind of turn into this um bit of an underdog uh movie that can hopefully stick around and resonate with people year long and make it all the way to the end to be fair though i remember having this exact conversation about uh raya and the last dragon last year yeah in yeah March, mm-hmm. and it made it uh, exactly so yeah, I would like to see the continued diversity extend not just to like the main acting and directing categories or the best screenplay or whatever, but also animation. So I just want to kind of, I'm hoping that this would be included. But like you said, the, the, a lot can happen in a year. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I also remember us having this conversation about Onward, you know, and like, yes, that was a very particularly unique kind of a year. But even then, early release movies, we always say like, "Eh, will they stick around in the animated feature race? But I think if they're from a major studio like Pixar, I think at minimum you have to just like kind of assume they will get nominated. Yeah. Yeah. And this, like I said before, this movie's got the reviews. I think it has the passion. I think those that really like it feel incredibly compelled to want to support it uh, year long. So I, I could see this movie riding that wave of passion. I guess, like I said, I'm just trying to approach this like realistically in terms of early release date, uh, unfortunate prejudice and biasness that I'm sure exists, obviously, but just no one's going to like come right out and say it. Um, but it's there. Uh, but hopefully it can rise above all of that and make it because I I think that 
it deserves to. I would like to see it uh, amongst that group in the end, and we'll see. You know, it's a long season ahead. It's early, right? We're only uh, fingers crossed. We're only in the second week of March right now. So, <laughs> uh, outside of that, um, I mentioned before the song. I, I love the song, but like, I got to be honest with everybody here. I don't think that those songs are going to go far, personally, because you want to talk about a inherent biasness. No, no one's. I don't think anyone's going to nominate a boy band song for a best original song nomination. Yeah, I'm very skeptical of that. You know, the the song category tends to not really go for stuff that I wouldn't necessarily say that this is like these are joke songs, but they're kind of, you know, they're lighter. They're kind of tongue in cheek at the same time, too. And that tends to just not be what the branch goes for in this category. They would be very deserving to be in uh, consideration. But I do admit as much as I love the soundtrack, I am not betting that they will be nominated i mean like what would be the most comparable thing happy and i think that like if they had gotten i mean if they could have gotten like in sync or backstreet boys or something to reunite and record them oh my god then it would have had a shot (laughs) oh my my god God. yeah then i would have been like it's in but i think that you know because it's not like a high profile name associated with the songs it really does sort of squash any chance it might have had yeah i mean it is Billie eilish so that she's gonna carry it a long way but I I can see them maybe making the short list, but I would be a little surprised if any of them actually did get nominated. It's so goddamn catchy, though, that I wonder. Yeah, I do wonder. I it's hope so. The people singing it. Oh yeah. You know, near all the way all the way through the year, and they'll be in. <laughs> I, I stayed through the credits just to listen to the song again yeah. as it was playing, and the score, which is the other element to this film. One might say that the song is never not on my mind. Yeah. Oh my, <laughs> oh my. <laughs> all right well that'll do it here for our review of turning red here on the next best picture podcast katie tell everyone that's listening right now where they can find you on the internet and thank you so much for joining us today thanks for having me um you can find me on twitter katie smith wong uh and that's katie with an ie and you can also find me on uh flick feast new scientist and film stories awesome thank you thank you thank you once again very very much Nicole Ackman, where can we find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at NicoleAckman16. And Josh Parham. You can find me on Twitter at JR Parham. And you can find me at Next Best Picture. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to our review of Turning Red here on the Next Best Picture podcast. We are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, and you can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can also lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you will get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening, as always, and we shall see you all next time. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere 
and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.